If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. It's Donald Trump's seventh week in office, and I'm Kristen Roberts, Washington editor for the 30 news organizations all around America that together make McClatchy. Every week, we call the senior correspondents who live and work in political battleground states and ask them to open their notebooks and to tell you about how voters are reacting to Trump, the GOP Congress, and the actions coming out of the Capitol that affect your lives. On the hook this week are Colin Campbell of the News and Observer in Raleigh and Chris Catalago of the Sacramento Bee. Colin, so nice to see you again. Hello from Raleigh, Kristen. What do you want to talk about today? I want to talk about infrastructure. Uh, What is in President Trump's infrastructure plan and how is it going to play out in the states? I want to talk about the widening controversy around Russia's influence, both during the 2016 campaign and maybe even inside of this White House. And let's wrap it up with our usual lightning round of newsmakers for the upcoming campaigns in 2018 and 2020. Today, I'm bringing a secret weapon to the lightning round. He's a special guest who is well known to political operatives, but might be new to anyone who doesn't live and breathe politics. It's Adam Wollner. He's an analyst at The Hotline. One more thing before we start. I want to say thank you for the great feedback we're getting. Please keep sending your questions and your ideas and tell us what's happening in your state. Email us at btb at That's BTB as in beyond the bubble. Let's get started. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Welcome back to Chris. How you doing out there? I'm doing well. Excited to talk infrastructure. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Hello to Katie Glick. Welcome back. Hi, Kristen. I just discovered our new espresso blend in the office. I am very amped and ready to be here. I definitely need one of those. Anita Kumar, our Trump White House correspondent. I'm glad to be back after a very boring tweet-free weekend from the president. I'm joking, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get started. President Trump is getting heaps of praise for delivering on campaign promises, and one of those was to rebuild America's infrastructure. With the Affordable Care Act, repeal and replace effort, the immigration orders, this is perhaps the agenda item most important to voters outside of Washington. Let's listen here to the president talking about infrastructure and the investment necessary. To launch our national rebuilding, I will be asking Congress to approve legislation that produces a $1 trillion investment in infrastructure of the United States, financed through both public and private capital, creating millions of new jobs. Anita, $1 trillion is a lot of cash. It is. But let's be clear, he's not talking about $1 trillion from taxpayers. He's talking about public-private partnerships. So he's talking about tax credits that companies would get to invest and build and rebuild all across America. 
But I will say people are pretty skeptical things are going to happen anytime soon. There's a couple reasons for that. One is that um, they are worried, as you mentioned, that it would take a backseat to Obamacare and also tax reform, which she's talked about. But also we've done reporting where at the National Governors Association and my colleague Lindsay Wise has just been to an infrastructure conference that sounds interesting, in Montreal, (laughs) um, where investment bankers and lawyers and people that are very skeptical, things are going to happen. They haven't heard any details, and they're actually quite worried about it because this is their livelihood. This is their business. Well, the infrastructure spending piece of it, I think there was some confusion among voters, even, you know, reporters and people in the industry about what Donald Trump was going to do. And I think that there was at the start of the term a lot of discussion around whether Donald Trump could get a package like this through Congress, which fundamentally misunderstood what Donald Trump was going to try to do. Now, in the states, Chris, jump in here, because there are a lot of infrastructure programs or projects that have been sidelined or put on hold for many years in California that might see the light of day if what this White House does is cut regulations that are stopping them or find some way to incentivize the companies. Yeah. Yeah, there are dozens and dozens of infrastructure projects. Jerry Brown, the Democratic governor who has been critical of some of the things Trump has done, has said that this is actually an area where they could work together. He used that phrase. He submitted to the NGA a list of over 50 infrastructure projects worth over $100 billion. He thinks California, if this trillion dollars goes forward, should get 12 percent or 12 percent of the population. And this is something that he's been very, very encouraged about, despite all the differences the Trump administration has with, uh, you know, liberal states like California, that they could get this done. But then there's this train project, which I think uh, people are starting to read about. It's a train that shuttles people from the Silicon Valley back and forth into San Francisco. And there's a nearly a $700 million federal grant that is supposed to flow to this project to electrify it. And that's been put on hold. And so I think people are starting to see, well, is infrastructure going to be politicized just like everything else? That project is tied to Governor Jerry Brown's high-speed rail. And congressional Republicans, all 14, have written letters to the administration saying they do not want that grant to move forward. Democrats have said they really, really want this, including the Democrats that represent that area. Jerry Brown wrote recently to the transportation secretary saying, you know, this is exactly the sort of things we should be doing together. At the end, he wrote a handwritten note that says, can we please discuss this on the phone? He has not heard back as of uh, end of day Friday. So we'll see where that goes. Man, the tension is thick between Donald Trump and Jerry Brown. It is. Yeah. Colin, North Carolina infrastructure. Yeah, so much like California, uh, Governor Roy Cooper here, the Democratic governor, has submitted his uh, list of projects he wants to be included in President Trump's plan. They're almost all major road projects, major interstates that need to be widened, uh, that sort of thing. There is one light rail project on there. But the interesting thing for me to watch here in North Carolina with this plan is the whole idea of public-private partnerships. If you're doing that for roads, that typically means tolls. Tolls have been extremely unpopular here in North Carolina. In fact, just last year in our governor's race, the issue of adding toll lanes to Interstate 77 outside of Charlotte, a major congested commuter route, actually uh, is one of the factors that caused the Republican governor to lose the election. It was a conservative area where he needed votes, and he didn't get the votes because commuters there were very upset that they were going to potentially have to pay tolls for using the fast lanes on these roads. And certainly if you bring in private companies, you end up with more of these partnerships. And here in North Carolina, there's talk about doing that as part of this infrastructure plan for a couple other road projects in the Charlotte area and also Interstate 95, which is badly in need of upgrades and widening through its entire route in North Carolina. And toll lanes have been discussed for that as well. 
So what do voters there actually want then? If it is not more government funding, which means higher taxes to pay for these things, and it is also not tolls added to uh, the cost of driving down the road, how are the infrastructure improvements to be made in North Carolina? That's the hard part is it's and it's why North Carolina has struggled with this issue for years. You know, how much do you deal with the gas tax adjustments? Do you have tolls on roads or do you just leave roads alone until they crumble to where you almost have to do something? That There really is no good answer to that. And I think part of the struggle with this infrastructure plan is that for those who get jobs through whatever the infrastructure upgrades are, then obviously they're going to be very happy with President Trump. But the needs are mostly in the urban areas. So if you're out in a rural area and you're a Trump supporter and you don't see the impacts of this infrastructure plan, you may not see it as a, a good use of money. Uh, and the amount of money that's going into it at the federal level is going to be huge. The politics of this are real and significant, Anita. What's going to affect Donald Trump as he decides what projects to throw his weight behind, whether in a tweet or in a conversation with Congress that might be considering these proposals? Well, I mean, Donald Trump has had a lot of conversations with lawmakers. He has a ton scheduled for this week. Now, obviously, they are talking about other things, but you better believe some of these members are saying, hey, do this thing in my district or don't forget this place in California or North Carolina or anywhere else. The other thing I was going to add was when we talk about high-speed rail and we talk about Trump, there are some potential rubs between congressional Republicans and Donald Trump. Even in this meeting with airline executives last month, he talked about how there weren't enough high-speed rail systems in the country. And I think, you know, you see congressional Republicans really, really not liking that. So, you know, they might be on sort of a collision course to see uh, what sorts of projects they do like. Obviously, Republicans in California tend to want the money to go into roads, whereas Democrats want more to go into transit and things like that. So there are a lot of conflicting priorities and where Trump lands, whether he sort of sides with one side or the other, is really going to be interesting. One thing you learn about Donald Trump covering him is that he tends to be swayed by the last person he talked to. So whatever lucky congressman, like that. yeah, whatever lucky <laughs> congressman or woman has talked to him might just get the win there. Well, you know, if he would fix the roads and the transit system in California, it would make the invasion a little bit easier. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> Freshly paved roads for the tanks. Isn't California going to secede rather than Trump invading? Well, he'll invade after they secede. It'll be a civil war with California. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Here we go. It's impossible for us to not talk about this Russian influence, quote unquote, scandal, questions about Moscow's influence in the 2016 campaign and in this White House expanded last week when Jeff Sessions had to recuse himself from any investigation. I would note not that he said there was any investigation. Let me be clear. I never had meetings with Russian operatives or Russian intermediaries about the Trump campaign. And the idea that I was part of a, quote, continuing exchange of information during the campaign between Trump surrogates and intermediaries for the Russian government is totally false. It's an issue that is absolutely consuming Washington. In fact, this past weekend at the annual Gridiron Dinner, some of the best jokes were about Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. So, Chris, is this playing at all outside of D.C.? This very much is playing, especially with our folks in D.C. We talk about Congressman Darrell Issa, one of the first Republicans, uh, particularly in the House, to come out and call for um, for some independence in this in terms of an independent probe. On the other side, we see Devin Nunes, who is the intelligence chair, who has 
you know, likened a lot of these questions to McCarthyism revisited. That's an actual quote from him. So there's a lot of tension even in that 14-member group of Republicans from California. And I think people are starting to take sides and look at this in a very partisan way. And North Carolina is the same deal. No one here is talking about Trump's speech from last Tuesday night. That went out of the water sometime on Wednesday when that Washington Post report came out. And since then, all the talk has been around Trump and Russia. And uh, we've heard from a lot of the Democratic Congress members here, much like in California, who want to see a special prosecutor or further investigations. We also have Richard Burr, our Republican senator, who's head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who's under a whole lot of pressure to be more tough uh, in how he addresses this whole issue. Katie, what do we know about how voters are feeling about this controversy? So there was a CNN poll out Monday that showed that uh, sort of an increasing number of people are buying the intelligence community assessment that Russia did meddle to some extent, uh, perhaps in the 2016 presidential election. So, you know, the number of people saying they believe that is up. But then you have to look at the question of how many people are concerned about this. You have 37 percent of people in this poll that say they are very concerned actually about uh, reported contacts, perhaps between Trump campaign folks, people around that and Russian officials. But then you have another 28 percent saying that they are not at all concerned about this. So, you know, so far we are seeing sort of a partisan breakdown uh, a bit in terms of how many people are getting very much worked up about this. You know, I was talking with one of my uh, very smart Republican sources yesterday who was doing 2018 races, and he was making the point that, you know, yes, people feel that perhaps Russia was involved, you know, to some degree, but this is not the top issue for them right now in terms of Republican primary there's, voters. There's actually a glimmer of hope in that CNN poll, <laughs> which is, People haven't really changed their mind about Donald Trump. Now, his approval rating isn't that great. It's a mid-40s. They've been mid-40s for quite a while. But while people are concerned about Russia, it's actually not making them dislike him more. Well, and part of this is because it's kind of a convoluted issue. You know, every week we are getting new reports about different ties that people around him may or may not have had, different conversations they may or may not have had. You know, no question that this is a big problem in terms of the narrative for the Trump administration. You know, we were just talking about that speech from last week, immediately knocked that speech, which was very well received to the back burner. Now, you know, everyone is back to sort of talking about you know, ties that his administration may or may not have had with Russian officials. But in terms of how this affects Republican primary voters, you know, the question is, at what point does sort of all this scrutiny start taking, you know, playing a more direct well, role? Let me put that question numbers. right back on you. Yeah. What are the Republican political professionals saying yes. about the stickiness of this issue? I talked to a, a couple of them yesterday about this very question, people who are working on 2018 races. They say that where this may have sort of the most chilling effect is on the question of recruitment, of who decides to run for office in 2018. So, you know, that's interesting. Right. It is. So because, um, you know, it, we talk generally about how this map looks very good for Republicans at kind of a quick glance in 2018. A lot of states that Trump won, um, you know, now you see Democrats having to defend those seats. But historically, you know, midterms right after a presidential election tend to be bad for the party that just won the presidency. So the question is, how much does this Russia question start to affect kind of the atmospherics? How much does this affect how the Republican Party is viewed? And that's where this may be problematic. Chris? I would say you are starting to see some movement in the districts. In Orange County, which is traditionally red, 
Mimi Walters, Representative Ed Royce have come out and called for Jeff Sessions to recuse himself. In the uh, L.A. area, Antelope Valley, Steve Knight, who's also very much endangered, has come out and said that the attorney general should recuse himself. So these are early calls from folks that have joined Daryl Issa, and I think they would not be jumping so quickly if this did not resonate with their folks. And, uh, you know, when you start to see movement among the members of Congress, you know that this is having an impact. And for folks who are thinking about running, especially at the Senate level in some of these states that may be competitive, you know, there's already so much uncertainty as we've been discussing about, you know, sort of what the politics are going to be, you know, if it in fact still does look like a good map for Republicans or not. And and obviously, um, you know, Trump's approval ratings have been suffering some. And so to the extent that this takes kind of a bigger toll on, on those ratings, that may jump into that calculus just in terms of, you know, thinking about how uncertain the climate is going to be and if it's risky. I talk to a lot of Republicans who say there are there's an early test coming which is a lot of these folks that Trump uh, pointed to his cabinet, there's special elections coming up in April, May, June. So we're talking about Georgia, Montana, South Carolina. Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so these are all Republican red districts. But if Democrats even get close or even win, they know that they've got trouble on their hands. I want to pause here for a second just to make a quick nod to an initiative that we are a part of for an entire month. And it's all about raising awareness of podcasts. Our executive producer, Davin Coburn, brought this idea to me, and I said, of course we should do this. We are podcast lovers. We are. It's a chance to partner with NPR and The New York Times and Gimlet and Radiotopia, basically everyone who makes major podcasts. And the idea here is for everyone who listens to podcasts to go and find a friend who doesn't and encourage them to try it and show them how to do it. I will confess that I was once a podcast skeptic until I discovered Serial. And I will tell you that as soon as I started listening to the folks over there, I was finding new excuses to clean my apartment. You know, I was taking longer routes home from work. I'm on the lookout for a new NASCAR podcast for you, Kristen. I know you're a fan. It's just going to be an hour of Tony Stewart yelling every week. Let us know how it goes. Use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. That's a good hashtag. That's a great hashtag. hashtag. All right, let's get back to our show. All right, guys, it's time for my favorite part of the show, the lightning round. Each one of you gets to identify one politician or development or issue from the last week that did something relevant to the next election, whether 17, 18 or 2020. And I have a special guest. I consider him my ringer or my closer. This is Adam Wollner. He is a reporter at National Journal. He came up through the hotline. And there are few people in America who know more about House and Senate and gubernatorial races at a very deep and granular level than the people who come up through the hotline. Think Chuck Todd or Nora O'Donnell or J-Mart at the time. So, Adam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me on and setting an impossibly high bar for me. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) All right. First up is Katie Glick. Okay, my person for this lightning round is James Comey, the FBI director, someone we heard a lot about during the 2016 presidential campaign. Although we did not find clear evidence that Secretary Clinton or her colleagues intended to violate laws governing the handling of classified information, there is evidence that they were extremely careless in their handling of very sensitive, highly classified information. He is back in the spotlight amid reports that he wants the Justice Department to push back on some tweets from President Trump that relate to uh, President Obama. James Comey is someone that Democrats spent a lot of time being mad at at the end of the last presidential campaign. If it in fact turns out that Comey is going to be the person to be pushing back on President Trump with these Twitter allegations, then uh, he's perhaps someone that Republicans are going to turn on going forward. Chris Catalago. 
I'm going to go deep here and pick Gene Fuller, the state Senate Republican leader, and Vince Fong, who is a rising freshman in the state legislature. I'm Vince Fong, born and raised right here in Kern County. I'm tired of watching the liberal agenda threaten our values and our rights. They are the two closest lieutenants to Kevin McCarthy in the California legislature who have worked with him on all kinds of things. Vince Fong worked in his office. And if they are to implement any of the sorts of regulation changes and things in California, it would be through these two. All right, Colin Campbell. Well, I'm going hyper-local this week for a race that I think Democrats are going to be watching later this year. It's the Charlotte, North Carolina mayoral race. Uh, just last week, State Senator Joel Ford, who's uh, known as pretty much a moderate in our legislature, and he's also African-American, announced that he's challenging the incumbent Democrat who serves as mayor of Charlotte, Jennifer Roberts, who's uh, best known around the country for the local non-discrimination ordinance that prompted the statewide HB2 bathroom law. As the mayor of Charlotte, I will lead with compassion and conviction, living the values that we all share where we honor hard work, look out for our neighbors, and create an environment where everyone can be successful. So this is going to be interesting for Democrats because it's going to be sort of a referendum on does the Democratic Party in 2017 in urban areas go in a more moderate direction or does it continue sort of in a more liberal bent? So that'll be a race to watch come the fall. Gotcha. Anita Kumar. I'm going to go with a person this week, not a thing. Which is what, yes, which I usually go Breaking with a policy. News. I'm going to go with the Republican Attorney General of West Virginia, Patrick Morrissey, who is weighing a challenge to the Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who is getting it from all sides. He's worried about having a primary and he's already going to have to worry about this Republican challenger people say is very strong, but I'm mentioning him because of what he shows for the country, which is basically Democrats are in tough shape for 2018. So senators in places like Missouri and Montana and Nevada and Florida are really going to have to worry and watch out for Republicans. Okay, Adam, I asked you to come up with some notes, which you did on a lot of races, actually. Why don't you start with California. Yeah, let's go to, to California. And I think the reason California is going to be so interesting going into 2018 is, you know, Democrats, it's going to be an uphill climb for them to take back the Senate. They have a much better chance actually of taking back the House in 2018. They need 24 seats in order to do that. And there just so happen to be 23 seats where Republicans are currently the incumbents and Hillary Clinton won them in 2016. So that would be the logical place to start. And California has seven of those 23 GOP held districts that Clinton carried in 2016, starting with California 10. That's Jeff Denham's district in the Central Valley, moving south to California 49, San Diego area. That's Daryl Issa's seat. These are sort of all these upscale suburban districts. They're beginning to move in Democrats' direction. They're going to need to get them all the way in their column in order to take back the lower chamber. And I want to focus specifically on Daryl Issa. He's probably the most vulnerable of this group. He only won by less than 2,000 votes in 2016. And his challenger, Democratic attorney Doug Applegate, is already in for a rematch. And it's been interesting to watch Issa's moves so far in the new Congress. He's already taken a number of steps to sort of moderate his position, which is interesting because as the House Oversight Chairman, he really became a very partisan Republican figure. He called for a special prosecutor uh, to investigate Russian interference in the election. He was um, among the early Republicans to call for Attorney General Jeff Sessions' recusal. And he joined a, a bipartisan climate change caucus. So he is clearly already beginning to think about his reelection. Chris, how is ISA playing back in California? All the things he's doing in Washington, are his steps to moderate here in D.C. resonating back there? I think you're seeing sort of the usual partisan back and forth. There's a saying in California that if you could smell the ocean, then Republicans are in danger. And his district is right <laughs> on the ocean. And so it's a largely a story of changing demographics, a lot more Latinos in that district. And we will see if he can hold on to that seat. He's taken all the heat in these town halls. You know, people see these moves as 
kind of what they are, given that he was kind of one of the biggest attack dogs against the Obama administration. Adam, next. Florida also has a couple of these seats held by Republicans that Hillary Clinton won uh, pretty comfortably, looking at Florida's 26th district, that's Carlos Curbelo's seat, and Florida's 27th district, um, Elena ross Leighton. And that these were really interesting races in 2016 because Hillary Clinton carried both of these districts by double digits, and yet the Republicans won there very comfortably. Neither one of these members of Congress voted for Donald Trump. And they've already been very critical of some of the early moves he's made in his presidency. But the key here will be, can Democrats actually find a challenger? The, the conditions may seem right, but you still need to take that next step of actually finding someone who can win this district. Yeah, the bench is poor. Yes, it is. And that's uh, the, the case really all around the country. And, and I think one of the problems Democrats will have going forward is that too many of their up and coming stars are actually in red states and they just don't have a lot of room for advancement, especially to win statewide. You know, your old colleague of mine, Alex Rorty, wrote a story recently in which, you know, the main person that he quoted as the rising star of the Democratic Party is someone who actually lost. That's right. I, you know, you have Jason Kander, uh, who ran for Senate in Missouri in 2016. I just narrowly lost, even though uh, the state went overwhelmingly for Trump. And you just have to wonder, you know, what's next for a guy like Jason Kander? He started his own voting rights group uh, because, you know, really for him, it's going to be difficult for him to win statewide in the future. But he's, he's uh, keeping his name out there. You know, we see him in media stories all the time. He was, spoke at the Democratic National Committee's convention just a few weeks ago. So he's definitely someone to look for to stay in the picture for the Democrats. All right. What's your last race to highlight? Well, so this race is actually taking place in 2017, and that's Georgia's sixth congressional Georgia district. Six. Tom Price's old seat. He, of course, now is at H. And this is traditionally a very Republican area, but Donald Trump carried it by just one point in 2016. So Democrats are hoping to sort of turn this into an early referendum on his agenda. And there's already a, a liberal favorite in the race, a 30-year-old former congressional aide, John Ossoff. He's already raised $2 million, according to his campaign. But the, the problem for him is it's a nonpartisan primary. There's 18 candidates in this race. So he may struggle just to make the runoff, let alone win a, a general election in such a Republican district. One thing that could work in his favor, there isn't a clear Republican favorite at this point. I think there's 11 Republicans running. You have the former Secretary of State there, Karen Handel. She ran for, for governor and for Senate previously, so she has some relatively high name ID. But Ossoff is going to need to sort of walk this balance between – he wants to inspire some of these you know, younger liberal voters who have really sort of come out of the woodwork here ever since Trump became president. But it, it still is a somewhat conservative district. He's going to have to reach out to moderate voters. It's a voters really conservative district. It is. I mean, this is incredibly wishful thinking on the part of the Ds. It is, but – Republicans seem to be at least somewhat nervous about it, nervous enough that one Republican super PAC put more than a million dollars into a TV ad by there last week attacking Ossoff. And it was pretty interesting. Uh, since Ossoff is only 30 years old, they were able to mine some of his uh, social media activity from when he was in college, uh, showed him when he, as he was dressed up as, as Han Solo. You see, Ossoff was just a college kid doing things like dressing up with his drinking buddies and pretending to be Han Solo. I'm Han Solo. I'm not sure if, um, you know, attacking Star Wars is necessarily the best way to go about uh, <laughs> knocking a candidate down. But John Ossoff is getting a lot of positive press. It's still going to be a huge uphill climb. But I think Democrats, if they can at least get close enough in a district like Georgia 6, again, one of these more upscale suburban districts, that can give them hope that they can win more evenly divided districts in 2018. You know, it just strikes me as the most incredible head fake. You know, they're going to raise expectations of a potential win in Georgia 6 right. and then lose it so dramatically. Right. Absolutely. Although uh, the 
note on uh, Daryl Issa was so interesting because certainly at the national level, he really has emerged as uh, you know one of those most uh, sort of consistent Republican critics of Trump, at least as it relates to the Russia stuff. So that I thought was very interesting to hear about his uh, dynamic back home. Absolutely. I think uh, just the fact that he already has a challenger, I think that's he's going to have someone who's calling him out on every single move now until November 2018. Some of these other more vulnerable incumbents, you know, sure, you know, the outside groups will come in here and there, but they, they don't have anybody who can come up against them and say, you can pick me over this guy. Okay, Adam, last question. When will the 2018 contest actually kick off? Boy, that's a good question because, you know, one thing that's been interesting so far is, at least on the Senate side, a lot of House members have been somewhat reluctant to jump into to Senate races. I think because there's so much uncertainty over what the landscape is going to look like with Donald Trump. You know, normally think in a midterm year, it's usually a good year for Republicans, but with Donald Trump in the White House, I don't think Republicans or Democrats really know exactly what the landscape is like. So I think potential candidates might be a little more conservative than usual at this point and want to see how things play out. But recruiting is already underway, and, and especially in some of these high-profile Senate races, uh, you know, I would imagine parties are going to want to have their candidates and um, fundraising in line. Is and, and fundraising underway. is already underway uh, by this summer. So I think you know, over the next few months, we'll see more and more action, both in terms of recruitment and it's also been interesting. There haven't actually been a lot of uh, retirement announcements yet. No. Usually, even at this early stage in a new Congress, House members, Senate members announce the retirements to allow potential replacements to get in place. So it seems like things are kind of on pause for the moment. But uh, you know, the campaign cycle never really ends. Although it would be funny to see the impact of Donald Trump shortening campaign cycles, at least around the midterms. I would welcome that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you, Kristen. All right, that's it for us. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. I'm off to bother some more Republicans. Thank you, Anita. Off to work. See you next week. Bye, Colin. It was great talking to you. See you, Kristen. Back to the state legislature here. Bye-bye, Chris. The sun is shining, and this will be a great week in California. (laughs) (laughs) And a special thank you to Adam Wallner. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks so much for inviting me on, Kristen. You're welcome. Thank you to our executive producer, Davin Coburn, and thank you to our listeners. We want to hear from you, so please send questions or comments, even criticisms, to btb at mcclatchy.com. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground state. We might even ask you to call into our show. Talk to you next week. I'm going to surprise many people with this, but one podcast that I listen to every single Tuesday is Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts. Harry had never believed he would meet a boy he hated more than Dudley, but that was before he met Draco Malfoy. Two really lovely human beings who are in divinity school up at Harvard talking about Harry Potter as if it is a sacred text. It's like meditation. I listen to them and say, oh, isn't this lovely? (laughs) When you finish that, you need to check out Gilmore Guys. Gilmore Guys? Like Gilmore Girls? I've said too much. (laughs) 